welcome back everyone to the fourth week of carpool q and a i'm here with pastor tom yes this is our driving q and a video where we talk about all things to do with church planting the theology of the church that's ecclesiology missiology that's the theology of mission and anything sort of related with that we're on the highway in a toyota corolla if anyone's wondering uh how you going tom i'm good mate i'm very good Love and Sunday, as always. Awesome. How are you doing, mate? I oh, I've really never good. asked you how you're doing. Oh, I'm doing great. I love good. the driving. Had some concerns. I do have my eyes on the road. Uh, but People can... expressing concerns. Uh, jokingly concerns, I think. Ah, oh, you're fine. You're yeah. fine. They were really we're concerned. Good. They, I don't know, they, they pray about it. We just won't put a put a camera face in front way so they don't see, <laughs> see, what, see what's going what's on. Going. Just, just, Shaken. All right, let's get into the questions. First question. What's the biblical distinction between the universal church, God's people, the church, and individual churches? And how can we think about that? I'll, I'll throw out four different sort of labels which theologians use. And these are very ancient labels. And each of them refer to something a little bit distinct from, from its, its opposite. So you've got the universal church compared to the local church and then you've got the invisible church compared to the visible church so some people think those two pairs are pretty much the same distinction invisible versus visible is the same difference as universal versus local but i think there's a helpful distinction even between those two distinctions it is the job of theologians to make distinctions so that's what we're doing the universal church is the language of again um i'm Different theologians will have different particular nuances, but this is pretty much how it's accepted. The universal church is the language of all of the believing people, all regenerate people across all nations that are currently alive on earth right now. So everybody who believes. Not all of the elect who are currently alive, because some of those are currently unregenerate, but the universal church is all true believers across uh, across the world at any given period of time, right? I would say that the universal church does not include those in heaven because it's not so much the church, they are now they are now with, with Christ um, in a distinct way. So that's universal church. Local church then is the local bodies of churches. This is the way that you mostly, um, I haven't counted the verses for and against, but this is mostly how you see Paul talking, the, the language of the apostles talking about churches. Um, right. They mean individual local churches. That's definitely what we see in Revelation 1 and 2 when Jesus is speaking to the church of. He's speaking to a church in a local area. Um, there's seven churches that he's writing to. Um, uh, a lot of the New Testament epistles are written to certain churches, and so that's the language of a structured organized group of people so the confessions will say all those who are part of the universal church should find and join themselves to in submission under the leadership the, the local church so there's no such thing as the leadership of the universal church unless you're, you believe a catholic kind of doctrine right there's no way to submit to the elders of the universal church that's very nebulous and it really is not very functional it's just the idea that we're all joined together in Christ and across, despite not knowing each other and being in different languages and all of that. It's the broad picture. Local is really where it comes down in a Christian's life should belong to. And that's where church membership applies. 
So some people will say, well, I don't believe in church membership because I'm, I believe in the universal church. I'm a member of the universal church. Yeah, yeah, well, so is the person who never goes to a local church. And that really means nothing. It's so nebulous, it means nothing other than to say, I believe in Jesus. That's all that it means to be in the universal church. Then you get the other category, which is visible versus invisible church. And this is not relating to space and locale, but rather relates to the professing Christians versus the true regenerate Christians, right? So invisible does not mean you can't physically see them because they're all over the world. Invisible means the truth of the matter is actually only visible to God because he, he only sees the soul of man. He only sees the spirit. He knows the heart and the mind. Whereas we all we see is the outward appearance. So, for example, somebody believes in Jesus Christ on the street. An evangelist told them that Jesus believed the gospel. They are now a member or they are now a part of the invisible church. The, 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 one of the God's globe, people. Yeah, one of God's people. Now, again, this spans ages. The invisible church is... Um, uh, throughout all time, including those in heaven, if you want to use that language. Some do, some don't. Uh, but all people across the world at the moment who believe. But they have not yet joined themselves to a local church. They can still, in some sense, be spoken of as being uh, a part of the visible church if they're claiming to belong to Jesus, right? Yeah. Now they go along to a church and they here preaching, they like the church, they meet the people, and they say, I'm going to start going here, I'm going to start worshipping here. Now they are a part of the visible church. They, they belong somewhere. And we say visible because from the world's point of view and from other Christians' point of view, they can look and see a physical group of people gathering, living their lives, loving each other, speaking certain things, doing certain things as the visible manifestation of the church. Now here's where the, dis- where the, the categories really matter. Somebody, maybe this Christian has come along and he's refused to give up his fornicating relationship with his girlfriend. He doesn't repent of it. He's holding on to it. He knows he should repent, but he's really struggling. He, you know, he says, stuff these Christians. They're so judgmental. I'm going to have a relationship with Jesus on my own and my girlfriend. So he gets put under church discipline and kicked out of the visible church. This is where Jesus says, treat this guy like a tax collector and a Gentile. Treat him like a non-Christian. Treat him, because he's outside of the visible church, intentionally put out of the visible church, treat him like he's not in the invisible church. But we know he could. you can be in the invisible church, but outside of the visible church, right? And then in time he repents and comes back. Now he's a part of the visible church as well as the visible church. So... Yeah, they're the language. That's the language that we use, and it just helps to distinguish between. You can look at a body of believers and go, maybe you're thinking of the whole membership, a hundred Christians in membership at a church. Statistically, it's it's likely that there is people a part of the visible church that are not a part of the invisible church, false converts, and and so church discipline is that, and church membership is that way to weed out and deal with people in the visible church who are living in a way that is outside of their profession to be in the invisible church. And so they're put out. Um, so, so as Baptists, we, we, one of our beliefs is that um, all, we want the visible church and the invisible church. We want the visible church to reflect and correlate to the invisible church as much as possible. We don't want the local church to reflect the universal church as much as possible because that would just mean getting everybody into one church. That's impossible. 
But in terms of the visible, invisible, we believe in a pure church. Paul expects churches to be a pure membership as much as possible. Of course, everybody gets it wrong. Even Paul missed people's false conversions. You know, there are Judases in our midst. But as much as possible, a church should strive to have the local, the, the, the visible church representing the same membership that makes up the local, the local visible church. church. Yeah. Yep. So asking more specifically about membership, so church membership in the visible local church, what is church membership and how would okay. you how would you defend the, the need for church membership uh, from the New Testament? Well, we can sort of stick on the same like theme we were just talking about in, in terms yeah. of visible and invisible and local and universal. The kingdom of God is firstly a spiritual covenantal kingdom which has implications on, especially eschatologically or in the end times, it will have immediate implications on the created world, right? The kingdom will include a redemption of created order. Um, and I think in time, as a secondary effect of the spiritual kingdom, there will also be a, a, a social implications of the kingdom, right? People live righteously, society changes. But in the first instance, the kingdom, as Jesus teaches us, is not of this world. It's not, a phys- it's not a kingdom that can be traced through genealogy or through race or through birthright. The kingdom of Jesus is one that is entered invisibly and spiritually. Okay, so John 3, no one can enter the kingdom unless he be born again. You can't see the kingdom unless you've been spiritually born again. What does that imply? Well, that it's physically invisible. There's no physical manifestation except for the people that belong in it. Right? If you have to be spiritually born again to see it, it's obviously not physical. So it's a spiritual kingdom. People spiritually and invisibly enter it. That's what we call the invisible church. All kingdom people are in the invisible church. And there's no way to gauge or guess or tell who is in the kingdom except for their profession. Their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what identifies somebody as being in the kingdom, right? The question then becomes, if there's not something above that, something more objective to be able to say, is that profession real, then how how helpful is it to, how can we really know who's in the kingdom? Because of course, if I said, hey, everybody in the Roman Empire, everybody who's a Roman citizen gets um, all these perks, by the way, who's in the Roman citizen, who's a Roman citizen? I'll just take your word on it, and everybody puts their hand up. Okay, you all get to represent Caesar, you all get the perks, you all get the pension, you all get the money. Um, you know, image. already in, in the New Testament, you see that Jesus desires a pure kingdom. Um, and the apostles expect um, pure churches, like we were just talking about. So now the question becomes, okay, okay. If the only way of knowing how, who is in the kingdom is people's professed belief in Jesus Christ, what standard is there? to be able to tell whose profession is legitimate, right? What if a satanic uh, Jewish Roman put their hand up and went, hey, look, I've got a weird background, but I believe I'm in the kingdom also. It's an invisible kingdom. How can we tell? The answer is church. The answer is church discipline, which implies church membership. Church discipline implies church membership. Exactly. The, the, the answer to how do we know whose profession really qualifies them as being in the kingdom is the eldership who have the teaching ministry, which are the keys of the kingdom. They open and close uh, spiritual matters, but they loosen heaven 
through church discipline is loosed on earth through church discipline is loosed in heaven. What is bound on earth through church discipline is bound is bound in the spiritual matter places. Or if we want to put the language of church discipline and um, uh, the teaching ministry of the elders and the ruling ministry of the elders together, we can just say the structural organized institution of the local church. That's the answer to how do we know who's in the kingdom? So I like to think of it in terms of a lot of people are like kingdom minded. The New Testament, the New Covenant is the church is like it's all about the kingdom. It's not about an institution. It's not about an organization. It's just about being in the kingdom, man. You go, okay, um, I disagree. Uh, in fact, uh, 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 but, but, that, but then you can swing too far and go, no, it's about an organization, an institutional organization. In which case you might pick up something like the Roman Catholic Church. You're right that they just say things, they sign certain papers, they do certain acts and whatever. There's there's no organic reality to it. Um, well, it is both. It is the organic, spiritual, invisible kingdom that necessarily needs, in our world, visible, organized, institutional, legitimately ruled and ordered um, church. So the church is the institutional um, manifestation of the kingdom. So again, this is how functional it is. People say, I'm in the kingdom, I believe in Jesus. Okay, what body of Christians have affirmed that you believe the right stuff to call yourself a Christian? None. Okay, well, you may claim to be in the invisible church. You may even be in the invisible church. But you're not in a visible church yet. I have no confidence in your profession. Right? And and so then it, it bleeds also through church discipline. Would be um, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, put him out from your number. Put him out from the number of you people so that there can be a clear distinction between the unrighteous and the righteous who are inheriting the kingdom. Remember? So he's using yep. this kingdom language and the kingdom, uh, what, what solidifies or manifests kingdom reality, which is spiritual and invisible, is physical and visible church membership. Now here's the question. If, the, if he's telling them to kick him out, we have to assume there's a way in. If he's being told, you're no longer one of us, well, what do you mean by one of us? You mean somebody who rocked up at Corinth Church there's on Sunday? There's a group Sunday? of people there. Yeah. No, there's a defined mass. Yep. There's a list of names somewhere, and that list is our definition of who belongs in a membership way to this church. And so really, mem church membership is, um, practically, it can get a little bit more complicated, but it, essentially, it is no more complicated than a church saying, we believe this person is a Christian, and should be allowed to bear his king's colors. Right? Right. This person is not being is not out on their own where they're taking King Jesus's flag. But we agree that person rightly represents Jesus, and we and each person in this number represents that. So that when some guy gets up in the town hall and goes, "I like sleeping with my stepmother," the local church of Corinth can say, "Actually, publicly, let it be known, we kick that guy out. He doesn't represent us." And he can go, well, I belong to the invisible church. I don't need to be a member of the invisible local church. Okay, cool. But you're out on your own. And that sends a message to the, to the world. Mm. So it's for Jesus' namesake. That's right. Yeah. 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 The, the, so you think the old covenant, it was not a pure people. The very nature of it being a, a fleshly genetic covenant through descendants meant unless you're, you're, you're born again by, by being a son of Abraham, which it never was the case, um, then, then the old covenant was necessarily a mixed covenant. God was okay. Well, he was 
he permitted the fact that there would be unregenerate and regenerate people in the one people of God called Israel. The church is not like Israel in that sense. The spiritual Israel, which is called the church in the New Testament, is meant to be distinct from Israel in the sense that she is pure. She's supposed to only have in her membership actual Christians. And so if you don't have church membership, you're, yeah, functionally it's just like um, anybody who says they represent Jesus can represent Jesus. And that's not how um, it would have worked in the New Covenant. So, so that's like the, the, the logical, theological way to answer it. The other way to answer it would be there's texts in the New Testament that, that assume and that presuppose that there's a set number of people in a certain place who are making certain calls. So you have um, Hebrews 13 says, submit to your elders. Which elders? Any elder? Because I'm a member of the you know Invisible Universal Church. No, your elders. The ones that you, you, you should know their name. They should know your name. You're particularly and specifically under their care. Yeah. Um, and, and then he says to the elders, because they're going to give an account to you. Oh, sorry, an account to Jesus for you. Well, as a pastor, if I'm going to give an account for people, I want to be able to count them. I want to be able to know who they are. I'm not giving them an account for the Christians in Africa or the Christians down the road to us going to some some loopy church. I'm giving an account for the people who have submitted openly and formally to this leadership and to be a part of this body. So yeah, and then you get other places where, um, as early as Acts, when they're putting forward deacons, Peter says, you guys, well who? Who is he talking to? Obviously the baptized believers. He says, you, so not to, don't, don't ask the, the unregenerate Jews, don't ask the atheists, don't ask the Romans. You guys, you Christians, select men from among you. So again, there's from the inside of this constrained body that is a defined body of Christians. You Christians, select men from among you who will be deacons and we will lay our hands on them. So there's already, I mean, they were Jews. They knew how to take an account, who how to take votes and whatever. That's how it worked in their synagogues. They had mm. lists of membership. If you didn't have 10 men, you couldn't form a synagogue. You had formal teachers. You had formal singers. Everything was very formal. And so to believe that that was carrying over is uh, into early church, like first couple of weeks and days and years of the church, is not at all unspiritual. You know? mm. they, they had lists. If some guy came up and go, I'd like to be a deacon, they would have pulled out their scroll and gone, Where? I don't see your name on the baptism list. Mm. Well, I wasn't baptized. I haven't believed this gospel stuff, but I'd make a great deacon. They'd go, oh, no, sorry. The requirement was from among us. You're mm. not one of us. Mm. That's the idea of church membership. Yep. To be able to say, you've been checked in all reasonable ways. You're a Christian. Yeah. So once we have an established group of Christ- recognized Christians, which we yep. call members, yep. church members, functionally and practically, how do the members of a church, together with the elders, how do they make decisions about the practical functions of the church, the yeah. mission of the church? What's the relationship between the elders and the members, and how do they make decisions? The the elders uh, lead and rule, and through their teaching ministry, and the, including the sacraments, and through church discipline, the church people submit and uh, hold hold them to account. In general, you know, that's what you see in the New Testament. But but really, what they all vote on, you know, the rights and the powers of each member and membership in each particular church, there is a lot of wiggle room in between from church to church. This is where another part of church membership comes in, which is also quite unpopular in churches today who want it all to be spiritual and airy-fairy and feel like paperwork is ungodly. Um, 
uh, not only do you need a list of names so that other Christians know who is in a membership in their church, mm. so they know who they're responsible for, who, so they know who is responsible for them. Not only that, but you also need something called a constitution. Now that might be, you might call it something else, might you know be your bylaws or whatever. It might be five pages, might be 500 pages, hopefully you know, not five words, 500. but something that defines or constitutes the agreement that you guys have made together. So if in your church, the elders are given full reign to make all financial decisions, okay, well, that's something you need to know when you're signing on to be a member. Mm -hmm. I, I agreed to this. I'm not going to complain because they didn't ask me about um, supporting another children's worker or supporting another missionary. When I became a member here, I signed on to just giving them full reign with the money. Or you might be in a church where the pastors are not allowed to do basically anything without a congregational vote or, you know, uh, or without the decision of a subcommittee. Again, that's yeah. the, the, the reason I think it's so, in, so important is uh, I will have my own, you know, opinions that have been um, developed by my theology, my experience, my, um, I guess, theological heritage as well as the guys who trained me and taught me and stuff yep. but th 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 there's wiggle room for differences in each church that, that's the point of what i'm saying so so i think and this will be reflected in like the hope constitution but members should have the right to vote as we were just talking about on yep. who, who members are because okay. it's not just the elders saying we think this person's a christian mm -hmm. it's the body here agrees that that person is fit to be a member of the body they're mm -hmm. they're a part of the body therefore we'll just vote to recognize that you know, they're a part of the invisible body. We're voting to make them part of the visible body. They get to bear our name. They should also vote on significant financial decisions. You know, uh, uh, staff members, um, wage increases, sending a missionary, buying a building, things like that, because the church has no money. The church's money is the member's money that yep. is given. So in other words, if... If you told people without a vote, hey, we're supporting three new pastors, they're all going to sit around and do nothing and have coffees, but three full-time pastors, oh, and by the way, they're all my younger brothers, you'd go, oh, well, that's cool, but I can just stop giving. Mm. <laughs> you know, or, or if they don't stop giving, they just keep giving the same amount and they never prayerfully thought about, oh, we're thinking about increasing our, our budget, that means increasing giving. Yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll increase it. They just keep giving the same amount. Now the church is, you know, hemorrhaging money because the members didn't enter into that decision. Yep. Plus, in terms of a leadership matter, your leaders as shepherds should always want the people in agreement with what you're doing. You know, yeah. you shouldn't have to try and force financial decisions on them or big big decisions like that on them. You want them to, to be in agreement with you and going, yep. And that enables you to go, when you're like, you know, when you say, hey, we're not able to support our missionary this month. You guys voted. You know, this was a body decision. The body's got to supply. Yep. Um, and of course, things like, Officers, so the deacons and the elders. The elders should be, you know, be able to veto it. Somebody puts their hand up. I think Bob should be a deacon. Yep. I think Bob. Should, I think we talked about this. Yeah, well, last week. Oh, okay, yeah. I won't repeat it. So that's that's pretty much what I think. Members, members and elders sort of work together to do that. I, I'll also say I think just like a constitution, also things like a vision and a mission for a local church. Again, it sounds a bit you know pragmatic or seeker sensitive church style. It's not really. Mm. Functionally, every church needs one. What, yeah. what do you want to see occur? What am I giving my money towards? Well, we just want to stay the same size and be a, you know, just be a bunch of friends. Oh, that's lame. Uh, oh, we're trying to extend uh, extend the kingdom in this area and plant this many churches in a certain amount of years. 
cool, I'm behind that. Mm. Um, what sort of church are you? Oh, we don't like labels. Uh, you cannot get, I don't want to belong here because what am I What am I joining? What is this? Yeah. What? What? One what? If you don't divide, define it, you're not one. Mm. Is what people think. Like, oh, we don't put labels on things because we just want to be one. We want to be unified. Yeah. One what? Mm. If you don't define it, you're not one. Who are you? You're just a, you're just a, met, you're just a conglomerate flemble. Like, there's no de- definition about what you are. You're just a one. So, yeah, we want definitions. We want yeah, requirements of members, responsibilities of members. All that sort of stuff is brought up in those very practical things called constitutions or um, members' agreements or, or covenant documents, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Yeah. Cool. If anyone has any further questions about that, chuck them in the comments and we can get to them next week. Moving on to kind of a topic around relationships between separate, distinct local local churches. churches. Okay, cool. Uh, Lampstands, if you're tuning into yep. the Revelation series we've been preaching through. Very good. Give it a listen if you haven't. What should we think about Bible study group, interdenominational Bible study groups that are kind of between different churches and mm. a bunch of friends meeting together to have an interdenominational Bible study? Yeah, well, one of the words you use there might change it. Um, you said a bunch of friends. If you've got friends from different denominations or whatever, yeah, it's like, cool, catch up and have, have have your coffee, do your potluck and study the Bible. There's nothing wrong about that. Mm-hmm. Never call it an official arm or ministry of the church. Mm. You know, don't... Because um, there's no eldership governing. Yeah, well, who, who told you you could represent your church that way? Yeah. Right? You're just one person in a you know group of 10 friends who represent six different churches and you decide to call it, um, you know, well, this is a Hillsong Bible study. Well, this is a Hope Bible study. The elders might go, whoa, oh, we don't know what you're teaching. We didn't have an arm on that. Meet up Study with your mates all you want, but don't call. And then, don't don't neglect your local church's needs for non-local church needs. I would definitely say that. If it's like your mates, hang up. I mean, hang out. Cool. Don't on the long term. Don't neglect the local fellow the local fellowship of your own church's Bible studies mm-hmm. for the sake of going to your friend's Bible study. You know what I mean? Yep. Because. Um, uh, that that's just not uh, what we see in the New Testament. We see in the New Testament the belonging, the teaching, the growing together, the admonishing one another um, is done in those local bodies. Yep. That doesn't mean you can't have more, but don't replace it with friends. But then if it's like if it's not friends, if it's more like different pastors are getting together or churches are like saying, "Hey, send some people to our interdenominational Bible study." Um, again, I'm all, I'm all for Bible study, but don't expect much. Yeah, if, if it's got a purpose, like, hey, we're going to be praying and meeting with our local members of Parliament and doing simple Bible studies together to encourage them. Oh, dude, that's awesome. You've got a point. Yep. And, and, a and the mission, that's right, the goal and the mission always defines the parameters. Yeah. Whereas if you're just hanging out, hey, let's all get together and lead a Bible study. How come? Uh-huh. It'd be cool. You're like, okay, this is the, the mission and the goal is going to be so limited, it's probably non-existent, yep. meaning that the parameters are not defined. And so if you have people who understand that, then, then it'll all be kept very basic so we don't step on each other's toes. Yeah. But most of the time you have people who don't understand that, who usually think, isn't what I believe what everybody believes? And they're teaching very, de- they're saying, this is non-denominational, I'm not representing anybody in particular. But then they'll teach things that are very specific to their denomination and they don't even realize it. And so you're like, ah, this, this doesn't really, usually non-denominational just means Pentecostal. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. They say I go to a non-denominational church. Oh, so you're Pentecostal? Oh, no, no, no. We, do you guys? Does your pastor speak in tongues? Yeah. 
There you go. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So, on the topic of separate churches having gatherings together, what would be a healthy church partnership between two distinct churches? Again, it depends what the purpose is. Yep. If it's starting a, a, you know, a little institution to train pastors, uh, you're going to want to have a lot of agreement yep. you know, and, and agree to that agreement, write down that agreement and yep. all of that. If it's to... It's a denominational you know, prayer meetings. Yeah, then, you know, you can really pull back on that as well and go, Here's a, you know, our purpose is to pray to pray with one another. Any, any opening the word will be kept very generic, but again, define it. Mm. And um, yeah, that, that can be cool. Do that. You just have to be realistic. I mean, God, I, don't, I don't hate the fact that there's different denominations and different visible churches. I see that as necessary and good. And therefore, it's usually when people go, oh, no, the division is bad. Let's get together to remind ourselves that we're one. Yeah. Well, okay, but then it's non-functional because the, the functional, practical part of being distinct meant that we can pursue different goals in the same city. Mm. We didn't need to do phony oneness. Mm. We're seeking the same Lord, seeking the same kingdom. We know we're one. Um, but there's still great things that can be done in partnership. So, again, if it just means um, we're just going to be a fellowship, which is like a, a bit of a denomination, like what we're a part of, FECA, well, to what degree are we joining other other churches? Mm. Well, to be able to have a yearly conference, to be able to support one another when necessary and in prayer, and to be able to join together for legal matters and government representation so that we can each get our marriage license. Well, we have a statement of faith. We want to be able to make sure that the churches are that are representing one another, you know, are sound mm -hmm. and Protestant. But we've got Pentecostals in our group. We've got Baptists. We've got Arminians. We've got Calvinists. We've got, you know, homeschool and exclusive Psalmody Presbyterians. We've got, um, you know, all sorts. Yeah, that's fine because because we're not we're not sending the same missionary. You know, it's not like yeah. we're we're starting an institution together. We're, that that difference is fine. We're not sending our members to get counsel from them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, even that. So, so I don't mind having the church in my denomination, or maybe even something like join a conference with me. If I would never make those people a pastor, if I would never even go to that church myself, I'm still fine to do partnership with them because there's opportunity, you know. Yeah. So other things like conferences. Yeah, yeah. I, I would join with with different churches that would have much less agreement with us depending on their level of representation of us so um if they were just sponsoring our conference that'd be fine they could be almost anybody if they were sending a speaker and we're putting their name on our banners well i'll need to make sure they're a church i'm happy to promote yeah um yes yeah, so i think that the the range is really all over the place yep. and, um, and, I, and i try not to be too scared or legalistic of it because i've got good mates that i can work with who are extremely pentecostal and probably shouldn't be in ministry uh, <laughs> and I'm fine with that because I'm not making him a pastor in my church. I'm, and this is where it comes in again. I'm not responsible for his church. Yeah. Is he a Christian with a with a platform or an opportunity or a ability to help share the gospel? Yep. Cool. Party mm. on. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Our last question for this afternoon's carpool Q and A. It's a good sunset. Yeah. These people can't he, see it, Mark. That's a gnarly sunset. Yeah, it's beautiful. Why why preach from Revelation for the start of a church plant? And the person who asked this, they said, you know, it seems a bit culty starting a church plant with a revelation. 
<laughs> I get told our church is culty all the time. Uh, apparently, if you do church discipline and, and uh, have membership that means something yeah, and <laughs> stand for something, you go to a cult because the Antichrist is upon us. And, <laughs> and only I have the keys to save you from the mark of the beast. Mm. I felt that one. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll share this. It, to me, Revelation is a lot less culty because I don't believe that Revelation has a lot to do with modern day events. Or I think the Antichrist was in the future and Antichrist is just a fancy name for false teacher um, and false teachers. I think the Mark of the Beast was something in the first century, no longer going on. I think all the bowls of wrath that were poured out refer to the first century. So now I'm just living in Revelation 19 through 21. Mm. which is the glorious gospel taking a, a great harvest from the whole world as Jesus builds his kingdom. So that, you know, for me, as when people go study Revelation, usually what people are thinking is, oh, Mark of the Beast, all of that stuff. Yep. Whereas I'm going, nah, that, that's not the vibe I get with Revelation at all. So to me, it's it's automatically less of a culty book. But they're right, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the weird groups will do their, will hyperfixate on Revelation. No, but also we're just doing the letters. You know, we're just doing, the first three chapters. Yeah, the first three chapters, which was the image of Jesus, the, the, the exalted Lord and king of the church and king of the world, you know, and then uh, the letters that he speaks to his churches. And so for a church plant to just do those those letters from Jesus, we're okay. The letters from Jesus to, we are a little bit late. Uh, the letters from Jesus to his church are so important for a church to embody and to make sure, let's let this define us. Let's not get 10 years down the track and then look at these errors that we need to fix. Let's make sure we got them straight. So that's that's why I'm preaching from these letters. Cool. Um, yeah. You can go check it out on our YouTube if you haven't already. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Q&A. We'll see you next week. Bless you He's all. He's going about 60 kilometers an hour in a car park oh, yeah, directly to brick only, wall. Only 55. <laughs> well, we're here. See you guys.